Welcome back to the Leading People First podcast. This is part two of my conversation with Vic Marsh. He's a PhD candidate studying the challenge of innovation in organizations that face intense pressure to conform to existing diversity program templates. If you haven't already listened to part one, please pause and go back to hear about Vic's story, the misconceptions about diversity, equity, and inclusion, how we can shift our approach to DEI, and how to address and approach racism in our society. Now let's dive into part two with Vic. What does diplomacy do right? It's, it's really hard to study diversity when everyone's paying attention to it because um, it's just one of those topics that everyone has some experience related to diversity gone wrong or how they have experienced being different in an environment going well or poorly. Um, Everyone has an experience where they showed that they had thick skin and could take a punch, you know, a verbal punch, so to speak. Or they have examples where they have experienced someone really crossing the line, you know, and really being insulting and demeaning. So, look, people have full and rich lives. And so when they approach questions of diversity and inclusion, although they're is a specific field of science dedicated to learning these things. Everyone feels that they know what yeah. is going on. And that feeling, or as uh, Phil Fernbach calls it, uh, the illusion of knowledge mm-hmm. is a problem, right? Just, it's, it's much the same problem as you experience whenever you ask someone, ask someone three follow-up questions about how a toilet works. Yeah. They have no earthly yeah. idea. Yeah. They don't know. Right. We have a vague, you know, get me to, uh, you know, follow question number two. I have some vague idea that there's some suction involved <laughs> somewhere and tank of water matters. And, but then it goes yeah. through a pipe. Like you yeah. don't know. And so what, <laughs> where I get into trouble when I'm in a less diplomatic mood, usually on Twitter, right, is that I'm dealing with things that are, that are hard to imagine, that are counterintuitive. The idea that you don't just show up in a class and educate people to help solve a problem that emanates from people making mistakes individually and aggregating those up. It's just so intuitive to think, yo, let's let's train the recruiters on implicit bias. And nothing could be, I mean, it's among the more destructive approaches to take based on evidence. But it's hard to fight the intuition that, hey, what we got to do is we got to teach people that they have bias. Now, they do. It is true that they do have bias, but it is. it turns out that it just happens to be a destructive approach for Black women, Asian women, and Asian men's future progression up to the management ranks. Um, but no one intended it yeah. to be so. Well, I, I think that, you know, when as you say as you say how people feel like they, because they've experienced it in some form or fashion, right? It's to help those who are listening and myself also just kind of verbalize this and then make this more concrete for myself. It's like the individuals who, let's take COVID for example, this current pandemic, right? They read one, two Mm -hmm. articles and they say, I know everything there is about COVID. Or, hey, 
That's um, right. I know, you know, or ugh, I don't know, like take any topic, right? That it's this mentality that, hey, I did my quote unquote research and I know what I'm talking about. That's right. But the thing is, just like COVID and this pandemic, which is novel, diversity, equity, inclusion, while it's not novel, it's constantly evolving. And there is are constant shifts, right, in approach and tactics as we learn more, as we implement new systems or systems and, and programs and find that they don't work or they are not as effective or they work in ways that we did not intended them to be. So just like a science experiment with COVID-19, we need to continually research and keep an open mind with new findings and new ways of approaching things. Now, again, and I think that you've, you hold this belief as well. It's not saying, we're not saying scrap unconscious bias training, implicit bias training completely, right? We're, we're saying, Hey, it, it, it has a time and place. And I think I've seen you, you say it should be more voluntary, but there are different and better approaches to help organizations uh, uh, approach and um, improve their diversity, equity, inclusion practices. Right. So for me, I actually, um, <laughs> you know, sometimes the data lead me, depending on the sector, to want a complete scrap, okay. honestly, because I think people could deploy their efforts, right? You could take the same people and focus them on facilitating executive task forces for actual organizational change rather than standing in front of a room and showing a bar graph that shows the disparities we all know about. So what does that look like then? What, what... And the evidence is that they would be. So I think it looks like much like you see consulting around change management, uh, right? So let's say your large company is trying to pivot its global strategy or that your company is trying to even just roll out a new IT system to solve some problems, right? What we've learned over time about change management is that even things that feel technical and non-controversial are intensely emotional and rife with lots of controversy. So let's take the example of just rolling out a new IT system, mm -hmm. right? Already you're talking about potentially making some gatekeepers redundant and unemployed. Mm -hmm. Yep. Right? If you move from an old manual process where someone could stand at a window and say yes or no to your entry right. or exit or your access to some information, right? And you've changed that to be a point and click, download the information and make it transparent. Someone has just yeah. lost power. Someone has just lost control over an information resource. So rolling out IT systems is not easy at all. We find, I don't think anyone argues that the way you deal with people's sense of power loss is to send them to a one and a half to four hour training class about IT systems. That is not the fundamental issue. The issue is how do you negotiate 
a changing in the guard, a change in who has power over information. And it absolutely is a negotiation because some of those folks who are on the more obstructive end of your new IT system actually have some formal authorities to completely blow up your project. So it's all about a negotiation. How do you make these things work? Well, it turns out task forces are great for rolling out IT systems. Turns out that uh, management level task forces are similarly well poised to help get over um, the weirdness in a very much more emotional diversity and inclusion change management. Um, Look, we do find that there is a very important benefit to the initial switch, the harm reduction, right? If you want to think of this as a Nicorette step-down program, there is a major benefit to stepping down from mandatory to voluntary uh, diversity training, right? Now, a lot of general counsels will holler, but they're not hollering based on the law. They're often willing to misrepresent this in internal meetings, right? To just say, to wave their hands and say, look, the law says you have to have a prevention system and mandatory training is a prevention prevention system, a harassment prevention system, a discrimination prevention system. In actuality, the courts have not said that your prevention system must include X, Y, or Z. They have only said that you have to have one. So those of us who study this for a living, we not so humbly, right? It's hard to be humble humble when you have the facts and other people don't. So I I cop to a lack of humility, but we submit that you ought to pursue the policies that actually reduce discrimination, that actually elevate and unleash the talent of your ethnic minorities. And that means a negotiation of the changing of the guard. It means that white men named Dave, who are statistically overrepresented in in leadership. Yeah, I mean, there's more Daves in the Fortune 500 C-suite than there are total women. Now, some people will argue that this is just the rational market for human talent working. I submit that that is unlikely. (laughs) I do not believe, Chris, that the name Dave is a skill. I don't believe that for a moment. Similarly with our political representation, the name John is a better predictor of your entry into the U.S. Congress than any raw political accomplishment um, is by comparison. Now, some people accept that this is just how the market for talent works. I think we can do better. I think (laughs) we can deal with the things that are quite uncontroversial. At the end of the day, what's Frank Dobbin and Sandra Caleb and Aaron Kelly and me as one of their torchbearers saying? We're saying maybe work on your mentorship programs and maybe set up some task forces. That's it, right? Why is that so hard? (laughs) Why are we running around making people teach, you know, anti-racism in front of a class and scaring all the folks into shutting down their promotions of Black women, Asian women, and Asian men. One thing works, the other thing fails, you know? And so we have to fundamentally question, are we in this business to signal that we are following the masses in their movement towards anti-racism training now, right? 
which Ivonian Dukar over at Northwestern has, has debunked as, as useless, right? We, we can follow the crowd to send a signal because we want to get applause from some folks on Twitter, or we can do the thing that works and make our applause be the actual changes that we get. Why don't you fast forward five years and let's, let's, let's focus on getting applauded for actually achieving yeah. diversity rather than getting applauded for going with the crowd and these silly I trends. mean, I, I say this, I've said this multiple times, my listeners, if you've listened this to my podcast, um, you'll know I've, I've said this before as well, is that this is not a moment, right? This is not your hashtag moment. This is a movement. This is something that we have to ride the wave and, and, and actually progress, right? We actually have to Absolutely. make movement within our organization to make change. And we That's have right. to get better. I don't think I can verbally show how big my hands are getting right now to show that. <laughs> That's right. I see it. I right? But I mean, I mean I this is what we're, this is what we need to focus on. I mean, this is stop okay. hashtagging it. Stop making it the uh, flavor of the week and really make some change within the organization. And there's a lot that we need to really, there's a whole agenda that we need to move forward and we have to do better by our people. It is not about the oh. business. Mm -hmm. Yes, the business will benefit from having a diverse workforce that is activated and included in decision-making and uh, included and has a sense of belonging to create innovation within the organization. But we have to get past this social media phase. And, and something that I am very curious to get your opinion on is we just had our election. While it's still mm -hmm. quote unquote being contended and have huge points right. here. Yes. Uh, That's right. <laughs> we clearly have very deep political divisions within the United States right now. I don't know what it's like in the rest of the world, but I do know based on a lot of articles that I've read that they that countries are paying attention to what we're doing, specifically around uh, specifically around race and our political mm -hmm. divide. And with these deep political divisions, we're constantly told to overcome our differences and build bridges. So how, in your opinion, do we do that? What is the next step for us to actually start reaching out to the other side, no matter, again, which end of the spectrum you're on? How do we start fixing and creating relationships where we can actually start listening and understanding and learn and grow and be better? That's a great question. It is so much bigger than my knowledge base, <laughs> honestly. Like, I, you know, and again, I'm not often accused of humility, but I'm feeling a little bit here. I, I you know, if I could um, paraphrase what you may have said is how do we fix the United States of America? I, I don't know, Chris. But what I can offer is that the workplace 
can be a bit of a respite from what's going on. It can be. There's potential there, right? Um, now, that's a paradox, too. Is work respite? I mean, work yeah. tires you out, right? But in the sense that sometimes you can escape your labels and you can escape your low status out in your neighborhood by going into an office where you're actually valued for all the brainy insights that you're bringing to the table. So in that sense, it, it can be a nice respite from some of the weight of everyday kinds yeah. of insults and, and condescension that you'll meet out in the world. Um, but we're not even doing that part, right? We're not even getting people into the jobs that let them show their insights based on their knowledge. Like that's not, that's not our yeah. current situation here. Um, I think there are basically two opinions, maybe three. There are maybe three opinions on meritocracy. The first, I think, is becoming more popular and it's a bit unfair, and it's that meritocracy is a fundamentally racist idea. I actually disagree. I think there's a racist version, yeah. right? And that the racist version is the meritocracy exists today. So all of you Black folks who are not currently in charge of things, it's your own fault. That's the idea, right? The meritocracy exists today. But of course, I look, I, I challenge those folks of that view to justify the statistical significance of the name Dave in getting you into a C-suite job, right? I really doubt. In, in science, we try not to say what is true. We try to knock down what is clearly not true. And look, I'm telling you, that is a tough, it is really hard to justify the current heavy emphasis on whites in leadership positions as fundamentally based on merit. I, I, that's not a position I can defend with any yep. numbers anywhere. <laughs> you know, so good luck to those arguing that meritocracy currently exists. I urge you to go talk to our, our folks at MIT like Emilio Castilla and see what he thinks of the idea. I think he'll frown on that one. Um, labor economics has experienced a bit of a revolution. And even the hardcore rational actor models, most, you know, important high priests and high priestesses used to be the field of economics. But they've given up the religion and they've decided to focus on the facts. We will not take the alleged rationality of our leader selection models on faith. We will instead pursue evidence about who is getting these jobs and why. And every bit of evidence we find shows that your social connections, which are often segregated by race, matter tremendously for who gets the top jobs. It matters for who gets the preparatory mid-level jobs. It matters at every step in the chain. So we've got a lot to fix. And honestly, if we were even just being good capitalists, as Gary Becker urged us to do in the 70s, right? To eliminate the taste for discrimination, as he put it, um, we would be doing better if we were even decent capitalists, but we're not. We're, we're, so, we're so warped by our social networks 
and are, oh, he's a good egg. Let's get him this job, right? Number of HR people I met who got in there because their cousin was in a technical role in these fancy startups that are backed by venture capitalists here in the Bay Area would astound folks how little qualifications it takes. You know, when I stumble upon, you know, in the data science departments, when I meet an African-American, especially if they're a woman, they've got a PhD from the Ivy League. Yeah. They have to be overqualified, right? Oh, my God. They're like all, all the way overqualified, right? You don't see any self-taught cousins among African-Americans in technologist roles in Silicon right. Valley. Impossible. Get out of yeah. here. No way. You have no chance of getting that job. But be white and know somebody. That's, the, that's a yeah. secret sauce. So, I mean, when, when you say that, right, does that highlight the importance of mentorship programs and ERGs? Like what, what it, yeah. Absolutely. Well, yeah, even less so ERGs, right? I think ERGs have an organizational change role. I would say go find your ERG in the year 2020, but don't waste those minorities time in a steady state year. Right now we're in a year of flux and change. They, I'm, unfortunately, I can't join the crowd that says, to all black workers, Asian workers, Hispanic workers to avoid these things right now in a moment of flux and change. No, yeah, nope. Yeah. <laughs> I don't believe that <laughs> because you don't want rooms full of white women and men designing everything about your yeah. diversity program. That's a disaster. These folks don't know what they're doing. Not without some, some input from the product users, right? If we're going to design mentorship programs, it should be with protégés and mentors right. at the same time. Sponsored people and the sponsors at the same time. We need some co-creation here, but not too much because you can't have the minority tax being so high that folks don't get their job done right. and then don't get promoted. That just perpetuates the problem. So there's a fine balance here. I urge um, ethnic and racial minorities to look for credible signals that something could be changing. So what would those signals be? And a task force is actually an underrated signal, right? So people, look, it is true that the tweet about Black Lives Matter and the extension of your white collar holiday for Juneteenth, those, those are BS. Let's be very clear. You know, EEO advertisements, you know, when people put out on ads that we are an affirmative action employer in the fine print, it matters yep. not. Not an ounce. We find nothing in our models that says that those make a bit of difference. Those are all examples of cheap talk. And if you want to be cynical about cheap talk, I support you. <laughs> But the minute you roll your eyes at a task force, you've got a problem with me because the task force is not, it's not guaranteed yeah. to be useless. It is just not. It's among the most powerful tools we have because all of a sudden you've locked some people in a room and you've made them focus yes. on the numbers. And that doesn't often happen. And sustained attention at the numbers is important for this process. Now, what we don't quite know is what separates the good task forces from the BS task forces. And that's a fair question. We're still working on that. We've got a long way to go on that. What we do know is that on average, across a sample of 800 firms, across a sample of 
the, the 800, I think, was the mid-level firms. And I think Frank Dobbins sample and, and Sandra Caleb sample of 700 firms was the, was the big, big firms. What, what Frank is working on now is a sample of 600 colleges and universities. He's predicting the same effects for faculty yeah. diversity, right? Um, and so these task forces matter a lot. The one way or another, we don't know how, we don't know why, but these task forces are unleashing Black women, Asian women, and Asian men talent into organizations. That's People are fixing something. Now, they might not go on the record and tell you what they're doing. Uh, but I reckon they're fixing some blocks, yeah. right? Everybody's got the scuttlebutt of who only hires white folks. That's, uh, that's really encouraging to hear, first off, is that this new approach uh, that you're, you're, you're talking about is focusing on, again, this task force mentality, because, again, they are put into place to actually make change, to actually go in, figure out what's wrong, right. or figure out solutions for the organization to boost diversity, to create a more inclusive culture, right? So that, that's something that I, I is enlightening and, and refreshing to hear other than the, hey, let's just slap a training on it. Mm -hmm. And again, for me, coming from a talent development background and L&D background, oftentimes, right, my, especially early in my career, I dealt with so many managers who are like, oh, that person made a mistake. Again, this is talking uh, separate from DEI. This person made a mistake in their job. Right, right. Learning yeah. and development. They made a mistake in their job. Mm -hmm. Something's wrong with them. Put them in training. Right? Right. That is not, again, you extrapolate that approach to DEI. That is the, both of those approaches are, are incorrect. They are not the right approaches. You don't just slap a training and say, yep, I'm done. I fixed the problem. There are so many other underlying factors. And again, when you have that manager saying, hey, this person made a mistake in their job, put them in training, that's one person. You have a 5,000 person organization right. that ha and the organization has a DEI problem. You multiply that. And I think it's not a multiplication, actually. I think it's an exponential factor of 5,000, right? Like you all of a sudden have this huge problem mm -hmm. of DEI. It's not just a learning and development training issue. I'm glad you also brought up, though, the, the idea of faculty and, and schools and education, because you and I have previously talked about this issue of cancel culture, and especially when mm -hmm. someone mm -hmm. accidentally offends someone, unintentionally offends someone, and we've talked about this, and I want to put it in our, it, talk about it now, is this was the, sure. this was definitely apparent, this cancel culture when the professor Greg Patton at USC, right, used a Mandarin word that, that oh, sounded that's like right. a racial yeah. slur. Right. So even I, just slightly, yes. not even quite. Yeah, and, but yeah, it sounded like the, uh, a common filler word in, in Mandarin in, in the sort yes. of standardized uh, official uh, uh, work of kind of the 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 official language yes. for for main for for many parts of Chinese yes. speaking worlds, right? Sounds vaguely like the inward um, racial slur here right. in the United States. Exactly. And so, so the question I have for you is to dive in deeper into that: is how do we step back from this culture of canceling others and 
especially when it is this unintentional offense and becoming more aware and understanding of other cultures and other races because i feel that our society and again i'm going to just speak to the united states because that's where i live and that's where i'm experiencing all of this is um, totally fair is we tend to have when we look at diversity equity inclusion we tend to only use one lens at a time right we say okay here is the black lens here is the asian lens here is the latino lens latinx here's the lgbtq lens but in reality right are when you look at the notion that we have when you look at the idea of intersectionality there are multiple lenses at play and especially when you mix those lenses together and each individual has a different combination of these lenses or filters or whatever uh, you want to say and you put them together there's going to be some sort of incidental accidental offense that's going to happen based on a misunderstanding so again back to the question Mm -hmm. i want to hear from you i mean how do we as let's just take this as an organization as a company let's say this a company has this problem how do we get the people in the company to be more aware and understanding of each other's cultures and backgrounds right that that's a great question i think um you know in some sense I, I'm I'm more qualified to speak about the first than the second in some mm-hmm. ways, right? The the first question on this USC issue, fundamentally, um, and th- this is a class where appar- apparently some um, some group of MBA students in a class that was about business communications and international business communication right. specifically. Um, some MBA students really took their professor, their instructor to task for using the Mandarin phrase, the filler phrase, nega, right? Or jaga, or naga, or jaga, right? Like these, these, these are very important for fluency, right? So as, as an African-American man who's, <laughs> who has lived and worked in China, it worked in China, um, both myself and together with the Black China Caucus on Twitter, uh, we reacted very strongly against this um, idiotic notion that some language with a billion <laughs> spoken by a billion needs to 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 take notes and edits from uh, right. folks in a a, a superpower a country on the other half of the world, right? That that's not a thing. You know, I'm also a speaker of Turkish and boy, do we have some filler word problems with ours, right? Should we change and ban forever the sound um because it relates in Turkish to the C word, which is a common epithet against women, right? I think we would find it weird, a a bit strange if some uh, Turkish Americans or, or Turkish international students demanded that we simply control our use of um, not for our own benefits, for clarity of communication, but for some reason of internationalized politeness, Mm -hmm. right? It's just a strange request. Now, what's the root of this problem? Two roots. 
number one, I think there's a real misunderstanding of what psychological safety is all about. And so we see this in the communication when the Dean Garrett, who's got a great reputation for being a dean, dude was dean at Wharton, now he's dean at, at USC's business school. But he went out there and he, he misread publicly the purpose of the idea of psychological safety. And he's a researcher who's in the same field, organizational behavior, where you're supposed to know the definition <laughs> yeah. of psychological safety in a, yeah. in a technical way. So, I mean, we've already, like, I know I can't work there because I need my deed who's in my field to know our constructs, right? right? <laughs> like, I think I need you to know what our psychological scales are actually talking about. So it's forgivable if people out in the world, out reading the press, have misunderstood the construct because that happens in media, right? People have gotten a sense that psychological safety is about coziness. It's about getting a warm blanket and feeling safe in your brain psychologically. That's a direct literal reading. It's an understandable mistake. That's not what Amy C. Edmondson was talking about when she coined the phrase and backed it up with survey-based quantitative research, right? What Amy was talking about was the, the ability to take interpersonal risks and to there to be lower, fewer consequences for interpersonal errors. So we have precisely the opposite occurring at USC when they discuss psychological safety. They're literally reversing the term 180 degrees. So it's one thing, again, like I said, if a student activist wants to take a really cool phrase and repurpose it for political purposes, that's normal. That's part of, that's part of activism, mm -hmm. right? right? Like, that's the name of the game. Look, you have a goal, you're trying to accomplish it, you do you. But when the dean of the business school takes an organizational behavioral construct and reverses it 180 <laughs> degrees, missing the chance to give feedback to his own MBA students, Right? I mean, like we know that when you have psychological safety, that means fewer people in your teams are worried about speaking out of turn. Fewer people on your teams are worried about stepping on toes. Fewer people on your teams are worried about being offensive, right. honestly. And we know from evidence that you're going to have um, safer adoption of surgery techniques yeah. in hospitals. You're, you'll literally save lives if your teams feel that they can be candid with each other about problems that they see, right? We know that having the true psychological safety, the scientific psychological safety, helps with organizations developing yeah. new services against their competition. We know that scientific levels of psychological safety are linked to higher organization-wide performance learning, um, including learning from mistakes. That's what we know in the science of this stuff. Well, what the dean of USC went out and said is that nobody should make you feel uncozy. Yep. He yeah. just got it wrong. He's, he's just like literally got incorrect a thing that he should have known just from, I mean, this concept is taught 
in every introductory PhD seminar on organizational behavior. So, so here, I'm a black dude who studies this same stuff that Dean Garrett has studied, who's watching Dean Garrett's reaction to his local black students, MBA students, right? These are grown women and men at, at USC. And here's, here's, here's my problem. My problem is that the real problem here is that they didn't have anybody around on faculty that they could ask this. Because no matter what Dean Garrett is saying positively about, you know, hey, I'm going to make you feel cozy. So you should not hear words that make you feel weird, right? Dean, he's good on that stuff. But what he is not conceding, he is not adding a whole bunch of new black, you know, black or other minority faculty Mm -hmm. into the mix. Faculty who might have connections, right? You know, black faculty at business schools, they know each other. We have Facebook groups. Do you think somebody wouldn't have raised a red flag in the black business professor Facebook group and say, hey, anybody do China, <laughs> right? And then I would have responded yeah. immediately and said, hey, brother, I got you. Hey, sister, I got you. Yo, I am deep in knowledge of China. Let me tell, put the students on the speakerphone. Do not die on this hill. This yeah. is not a thing. I promise. Like I'm a black, have I turned my head and kind of grinned a little bit in Tiananmen Square when I heard, you know, people just going about their normal business saying this filler word? Yeah, it's kind of funny actually. (laughs) But I have not been angry because it, because it's not a thing. It's not a thing. It's not, and I'm, you know, the intent can be, you can dissect intentions too much, you know, as a utilitarian, I'm just, that's not what I'm into. I'm asking, is holding this person accountable, you know, in air quotes, accountable for use of a common filler word? Is that process useful? Or is it another example of people doing silly things in the name of my people, right? Don't make me look silly because you decided to die on a hill that says that a whole civilization has to change their filler words in their language. Maybe we negotiate a trilateral swap. You know, we give up use of um to the Turk. (laughs) The Chinese give up use of nega to us. Now we got to figure out what is offensive between Turkish and Mandarin and complete the circle, right? I don't have time for this. Have we solved the macro aggressions yet? Can we, can we fix things like qualified immunity, which means that a cop is literally immune from getting sued the pants off of, so it remains cheap to asphyxiate people? Comparatively, it's just yeah. cheap, right? It's a brilliant strategy in Minnesota. Who do you choose as your police union leader? You choose the guy who gets away with multiple homicides of black people. That's the guy you wanna be your leader because he knows how to choke folks out in these streets and uh, not face legal or even civil liability claims as a result. I mean, this is the United States of America and we have defined a class of people that you cannot sue in America? (laughs) (laughs) It's your right to sue anybody for anything in, in the United States. But these exceptions always fall along racial lines, right? The exceptions is for the stuff 
that matters to, and more importantly, class lines, right? That matters to vulnerable yeah. groups, right? Who's getting choked out and shot by police? The mentally disabled of all races. Whites who are poor. And blacks, rich or yeah. poor. I mean, just, just be black. You're yeah. at some risk here. Right? But if you have vulnerability, if you have a sense that you can get away with it because a society treats you as low status, mentally disabled primary, right? That's the probably number one target. That's where we actually need, you know, maybe uniformed social workers with their yes. own unions and their own prestige, right? Maybe they need their own flag, right? We give them a color. <laughs> you need a color if you're going to have a movement in the United States. You know, maybe they wear yellow and you need a yellow lives, yellow heroes matter flag of some sort. You know, um, we need something. The thin, the thin orange line for social yeah. work <laughs> in complex yeah. situations with folks who are um, low in, in, in wealth and, and, and who have uh, who have challenges relating uh, across their own cognitive difficulties. Um, but no, let's not do any of that, right? Let's not address, the reason we're all hyped up about diversity right now is because we were stuck at home and a black man was asphyxiated on television. Right. The answer to that certainly isn't diversity training, <laughs> right? Yeah. Right? So I think the workplace answer to this controversially is to work things out so that maybe people are less often overworked. We have no spare time for social justice movements. There's no time. The modern workplace is squeezing everything out of you. We've gone from bowling alone to bowling at work, right? Where are people meeting their spouses, kind of having sex in the hierarchy? And all this crazy stuff stems from the job demands being too darn high, right? They're, they're, you know, I know it's, it's not a popular view to, to wonder if people might want to seek their authentic selves outside of their, the four walls of their, organi of their workplace organization. Yeah. Maybe if you got educated as a, as, a, as a curious person about, you know, human rights and justice issues and police accountability, maybe if you had more time for the surge meetings, the standing up for racial justice um, after work, right. right? But when you're leaving the office at 8 p.m. or worse, when do you have right. time to engage in actual changes to our society? Who has time to go to the police review board meetings and question why in the city of New York you've had, I think, more than 10,000 uh, complaints from citizens and not a single one adjudicated in favor of the citizens? Call me crazy, but I think of the 10,000 complaints, there's probably at least one <laughs> that is valid in the city of New York, right? But no, no, no. Who has time to engage in these social institutions? Right. Right? The bowling leagues are gone. So are the kinds of things I shared about my own mom and dad, the kinds of after hours engagement in your society. 
showing up for commission meetings, planning board meetings, all that stuff is made much harder by the fact that we have permitted our workplaces to squeeze every ounce of our time and to put it at work. We've permitted it by uh, mandates, right? By these inflexible, algorithm-driven, shift-shifting systems for designing when someone must show up. (coughs) You know, the horror it is today to be downtrodden and working in a restaurant job when a computer is texting you hours before a shift and demanding your total flexibility to the needs of the organization, right? That is also the experience at the high end, right? You know, at the very least, people downtrodden have the general sense that it's wise for them to join unions. People at the upper crust, working these client-facing jobs for fancy consulting firms have none of those senses at all. We've somehow let it be said that these elites are too good for unionization. Mm -hmm. Such that they have entrapped themselves in the golden handcuffs. Sure, the the gold is real. You can buy it. It's real gold. But it also means the totality of their time is spent in work, especially in these upper crust client facing industries. And there's no one drawing boundaries. And so my belief that's a little out of step here is we need to focus less on, you know, look, I don't want people to feel that they have to be a drone in the office. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that it's also a worthwhile pursuit to think carefully about what is the total number of hours that we are spending Um, in the workplace? And wouldn't our society be better served if we had a little bit of discretionary time to work on fixing all these other uh, deep challenges, right? Challenges that, that, that require time to fix, that require spare time to fix collectively. That's a really good point. I mean, I mean, we, no one, especially now during the pandemic, we do not have time. And because we are hype, I mean, you, you thought we were productive before, but man, are we productive now? Oh my gosh. I mean, oh my it, God. it's incredible. And I get a sense you're not using productivity as only a positive no, word not. there. <laughs> I absolutely am not. I mean, <laughs> right? again, right? When, when we come back to this notion of leading people first, right? You, as a leader, you have to recognize that your employees are not their job. They are, right? They are are also their family. They are also their culture and their background. And they are also the community service uh, actions that they they have in in the organization. They are also their social circles. So take into account that people are not just about work. And let your people do their work and also allow them to fix or put in effort into what they care about and what they're passionate about. Look, not all of your employees are going to be passionate about um, side projects in your organization. Like, Hey, I want to join an ERG or I want to, you know, help, like hop on that DEI task force. And let's, and by That's the way, right. let's, yeah. I, I want to address that real quick, but I don't want to get into it just from a time sake. It's time <laughs> for, for time sake. 
but sure, sure. Employees who are working in DEI or employee engagement, and they should not be volunteering their time. Pay those people their what they're doing because they are doing something to progress and work, like make your organization better. Okay, I'm, I'm off the soapbox now, but again, allow your employees <laughs> to focus on what they love and care about. Right? If your employees, mm-hmm. if you give license to your employees to say, "Hey," we are not going to overwork you and expect all these unrealistic deadlines and, and, and outputs from you. Go do what you need to, what you love doing. And if that happens to be within the workplace, great. If that happens to be, hey, I want to do some community service, great. I, I have social justice mm-hmm. uh, activism or, or uh, progress that I want to make within our organization or outside of the organization, great. I want to go be on the PTA board at my child's school because I don't, right? We right. have to yeah, allow that. that. So yes, we absolutely need, need it. So, um, you know, to wrap up, um, I want to, I mean, you, this has been such a great conversation. And for those of you listening, we had to do this in two takes because we had such an amazing conversation. I just have to call <laughs> that out. So Victor, thank you so much for, for giving me more time than I, than I usually Any ask. Um, but to, the, the last question I want to ask you is, what is the mm-hmm. impact that you want to leave on people? Gosh, I, the, the impact I hope to leave... And, and this is specific, right? Because I'm, the, the career I'm hoping to have is a long-term career in research and teaching. So I think the impact I'm hoping to leave with people is to help people stay curious about the results of their work and to help people doubt more the importance of their own intentions. Um, And it goes back to, again, those three moral philosophies all over again. America is firmly in the camp, the the camp of Aristotle, right? The self-improvement. I'm going to do this and I'm going to, you know, it's really, I'm going to do this behavior. I'll get better. I'll become the good person who I want to see in the world. And that is important. Lord knows I don't want people to be stagnant. I want people to practice behaviors that help them improve. But in addition, (laughs) I want us to care about the results and whether we can just trust our gut or if we need to be a bit more curious, a bit more experimental, and try to figure out if our gut was right or wrong. So that's what I hope to accomplish as a teacher and as a researcher, um, there's a lot of weird, complex, counterintuitive stuff in the world, uh, but we gotta stay curious about it and not insist that our positive motive is proof of effectiveness. Love it, absolutely love it. Man, Victor, thank you again so much for for being on this podcast. Um, I'm so, so grateful that you and I got connected through a roundabout way actually right and so yeah it was yeah. kind of hilarious uh, <laughs> but 
thank you. I appreciate the uh, you being willing to seize yeah. opportunities, even though we were introduced kind of in a yeah. in a weird uh, yeah. path. Um, I'm just grateful yeah. oh, that it happened. Too. Absolutely, me too. Um, okay, so where can people connect with you? Where can people hear more, Victor? <laughs> sure. Oh yeah. So I'm on. Um, Twitter too often. <laughs> and, and my handle is just at Vicmarsh, V-I-C-M-A-R-S-H. Um, also over at, at LinkedIn, I'm, you know, at the usual precursors there, it's just slash yeah. Vicmarsh <laughs> on LinkedIn also, V-I-C-M-A-R-S-H. So awesome. Well, again, thank you so much for coming on. Um, make sure you connect with Victor and continue this conversation, continue to be curious. And again, Victor, have a great rest of your day. And we'll, we'll, I know we'll be in touch. We'll talk soon. Look forward to it. Take care, Chris. I really hope you enjoyed this conversation that I had with Victor Marsh. There's just so much to unpack around DEI, especially when it comes to our own preconceived notions on how we should approach it within our own organizations. So my main takeaway for you is to remember that your organization and your employees are unique, and that will require a unique approach and solution. And I mean, honestly, that's what makes the employee experience at different organizations so great, because every organization has its own culture and mindset. So make sure you treat it that way. Treat diversity, equity, and inclusion that exact same way as you would with your other programs. Again, make sure you connect with Vic on Twitter and LinkedIn. And if you're looking to learn more about DEI, be sure to check out Amplify DEI. It's your own personal online library of DEI information. It's almost like having those experts in your back pocket. And if you're looking to bring training programs, virtual or on-site, into your organization on topics like civility, unconscious bias training, sexual harassment prevention, make sure you check out trainextra.com and let them know that the Leading People First podcast sent you there. Let's keep the conversation going on the Leading People First pages on LinkedIn and Instagram. I would love to hear from you. Keep leading people first and stay awesome.